Welcome everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm Rafi Landovitz from University of California, Los Angeles, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this conversation on new strategies and challenges of PrEP in the COVID-19 era, um, sponsored by IAS USA. Um, and I'm really delighted to be here with Dr. Turner Overton from University of Alabama at Birmingham for this conversation. And I'll let Turner introduce uh, himself and we'll look forward to getting into this right away. Our plan, just so you know, um, is we're gonna chit chat for about um, 40 minutes and then we'll turn to questions that will come in. The chat is disabled, um, but please feel free to use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and we'll try and keep an eye on it as we go and then we'll turn to, to making sure everyone's questions are addressed as we get towards the end. Turner? Yeah, great. Hey, thanks, Rafi. It's um, good to see you. It's been too long um, since we were able to sit in the back of the room at the IAS USA conferences and, um, you know, give snarky comments about Mike Sag or whomever else is on the podium. Um, I want to send a welcome to everybody. So I'm Turner Overton from uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I'm delighted to talk about, uh, uh, you know, an RNA virus that isn't COVID. Um, so before COVID, you know, I spent much of my time doing HIV work, comorbidities, but also um, helped start our, the first uh, prep clinic here in Alabama. So we have faced challenges, and I hope we can get to some of that today and how we're we're getting around those. Um, but to start, you know, I think the one of the sad things about this COVID stuff is this summer we didn't all get to travel together for the IAS conference. And, you know, there's been lots of kind of exciting data coming out about newer therapies and, and specifically long-acting injectables for both treatment and prevention. And, and so we've, we've seen some of the data for treatment. And then this summer, you know, the uh, HPTN 083 with cabotegravir was presented by you, Dr. Landovitz. So I wonder, you know, for the audience, give us a, a little bit of perspective about what that means and, and, and where you think we're going with the field of, of uh, HIV prevention therapies. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Turner. Um, I'll I'll be brief because I I suspect many of our our uh, our audience members um, probably have, have seen the data. But just in case anyone didn't, um, HPTN 083 uh, was um, a, a phase two B three randomized double blind double dummy comparison of long acting injectable cabotegravir um, versus daily oral uh, TDF FTC for cisgender men and transgender women who have sex with men, designed to see if we could expand our HIV prevention toolbox from just oral tablets. Um, and the original study design um, was to enroll 5,000 participants. And um, uh, it was being done in 43 sites in seven different countries and had some pr important pre-specified uh, population um, goals to enroll in the study to make sure that it um, would be appropriately generalizable to the to the populations that we know are most affected by um, HIV uh, here in the United States and globally, um, and also some of the populations who have had the biggest challenges seeing the population level and individual level benefits from our current PrEP agents. So that was that was sort of the design and. Um, it, it, we had began in December of 2016, and the study wasn't actually scheduled to, to fully complete until 2022, um, but at um, a, a regularly scheduled every six-month 
data safety monitoring board meeting in May of this year, the study was stopped for demonstrating profound efficacy of both prevention agents and, and the DSMB from the NIH recommended that we unblind the study, present the results, and, and then as soon as it was available at the sites, offer everybody the opportunity to, to try cabotegravir. And of course, you know, the results were um, that in the cabotegravir arm, we found 13 incident HIV uh, infections for an overall incidence rate of 0 0.41 per 100 person years in that arm. And in the TDF-FTC arm, we found 39 um, uh, uh, incident HIV infections for an incidence rate of 1.22. So a hazard ratio of 0.34, so really a 66% reduction in the number of incident HIV cases that we saw in the people who have been randomized to cabotegravir. And that was highly statistically significant. And it, it ruled out our pre-specified non-inferiority margin and it ruled out the unity um, value of one. So it was a superiority result. Um, and you know we're in the midst of really trying to interrogate these results in a way that'll best inform people who might be interested in a non-pill-based um, prep regimen and, and that being to understand you know, what um, level of non-adherence or late injections or drug levels in either case contributed to or permissive to HIV infection um, in all of these cases. And, and also what the resistance consequences are of seroconverting after you've been um, given exposure to one of these two agents. Are they different? What are the implications for how easy or complicated it might be to to, to choose an ART regimen after that and, 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 and the different safety concerns. You know, the, the people who got the injections, you know, about 80% had some injection site reaction at the, the buttock muscle site where the drug has to be injected. And, you know, oh, happily, th those were usually mild to moderate and very few people had to stop the injections or wanted to stop the injections for that. But, you know, clearly injections aren't gonna be for everyone the same way pills aren't for everyone. So we're just super excited that, that it looks promising that there's gonna be an additional option in the, in the toolbox for HIV prevention, assuming that, um, that we are able to, to work with, um, you know, our pharmaceutical colleagues to support a, a regulatory approval. Um, so, so that's, that's sort of the top line data from 083 and, and, yeah. you know, it, you know, I know you're aware, um, having been a site that participated in the study that, you know, one of the most exciting things will be if these results are in fact generalizable to, to other populations, including cisgender women, um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And we have a, a sister study to 083 that's, that's ongoing right now in sub-Saharan Africa and we're hoping for results um, possibly even before the end of this year, but you know, we have to sort of see how that goes. We just don't know when that will result out at this point, but that would sort of be the cherry on top for you know, being able to have you know, another option for, um, for, for prevention for all populations. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, I, I, people may not know, but um, you know, the 083 study, um, it was not stopped early because of COVID, even though, you know, the timing may seem like that. The, the, the study really stopped early because the, the DSMB deemed it, uh, that it, you know, there was a, a significant difference between the two arms and that needed to be reported out. Um, you know, when I look at the data, I find some things that are really interesting to me. I think the first off is 
uh, a lot of people before the study were really worried about how well are people going to do with injections. It's one thing if you have HIV infection, but for prevention, and when you look at the, the data on injection site reactions, it's very similar to what is reported in, in the treatment studies in terms of overall proportion of people, but the fact that the vast majority are, are mild and well tolerated. And so many people really like, you know, the, um, you know, once every two month injections, once you're, once you're stable on therapy and, and um, it's much easier. And, and other, another piece of data that, that to highlight, I think, is that, you know, adherence is tough with, uh, with daily pills. I think we all know that. And it's borne out in the, the PK component that you didn't address, but you know, 70% of people, I mean, the, the average uptake was about 70%. So there's a significant number of people who are missing pills and may not have sufficient levels of, of oral agents to, to prevent HIV infection. And while maybe that isn't as big of a problem for, for males, for females, definitely that is an issue and something that we, we've got to look at and as you mentioned, the 084 trial, which is the, the, the sibling Sister. trial for 083 in women in, in Africa is nearly fully enrolled. So yeah, I hope we'll have data soon and it would just be, just be incredible for the field if, if the results are, are similar. And, and I, you know, I certainly hope they will. And just to put this in context, I guess a couple of other issues. I mean, you know, we saw the Discover trial with the, the TAF data showing you know, non-inferiority to the TDF, uh, FTC, but concerns about, you know, weight gain uh, with the TAF. And, you know, similar things were seen with uh, the cabotegravir arm of, of this. Do you think that has implications for, for HIV prevention? Or you think patients are concerned about the uh, extra one kilogram, two, two pounds of weight that was seen in the first year after uh, initiation of cabotegravir? You know, it's a great question, and that's sort of one of the hottest topics in both HIV therapeutics and prevention right now is this poorly under, mechanistically understood weight gain phenomenon. And I think there's weight gain for weight gain, but I think we're all concerned, is it going to have other metabolic consequences that come with those increases in weight and likely increases in BMI? Also, they're going to have other health risks that we need to consider just on top of just the weight gain and, and you know, and, and uh, in and of itself. So, uh, you know, the one thing I, I do want to say is um, the, uh, the results of 083 to me, the, the worst message that co could come out of this at all is that daily oral or, or oral, oral prep in general isn't good, right? I mean, that would be a disaster because it is good. It works really well if you take it as prescribed. And I think that gets lost in some of this um, notion that we found a superiority result and that we're now really drilling down with a microscope and looking at these, these more nuanced differences between these prevention products. I think the take home is both provided really outstanding protection against HIV and that's really critical. Um, this weight thing really is fascinating and you know, we sort of zipped through it really quickly in the AIDS 2020 presentation, just because it was a, a lot of information to be compacted into a super short um, period of time. And I really do have to thank the AIDS 2020 organizers. They gave me 20 minutes when they first told me I was going to have seven. Um, and I felt like I was at an auction saying, you know, hey, can I have half an hour? You know, how about eight minutes? Hey, can I have 20 minutes? 
no, you can have 10. And then finally we came back to 20. And so I'm really grateful to them. But we, we didn't get a chance to get into a lot of this, this nuance and this meat. Um, and you know, what's really interesting is you know, when we did the phase two study of cabotegravir, which was a placebo controlled study, albeit in low risk individuals, and that was men and women globally, you know, we, we found this kilogram and a half annualized weight gain in both the cabotegravir and the placebo arms, which raises this question that I think a lot of the cohort studies are now trying to get at of as we age, you know, aren't we all getting heavier year by year? I mean, I think I've probably gained half a kilogram, you know, sitting here chatting with you, Turner. But, um, uh, you know, I think, I think the point is, you know, as we age, we, we gain weight. Um, you know, in, in people living with HIV, there's the return to health phenomenon that confounds it, which is why I think the prevention data are sort of a unique and interesting opportunity to look at this, especially because there aren't those additional agents that can, can confound things thrown in. So that was the 077 data. And as you pointed out, you know, the, the first 40 weeks of, of 083, I think tell a very um, clear story, right? The cabotegravir, uh, there was a weight increase about 1.3 kilograms annualized and the, the TDF-FTC arm lost half a kilogram annualized. And after that, the traje trajectories of increase were nearly identical. They're about a kilogram annualized after that. Um, so there's something in that first year that really seems to be driven by this weight loss phenomenon, you know, with, with TDF-FTC. And we're trying to drill down and see if that was associated with nausea and vomiting or anorexia um, as, as a motivator, or is, is there something more nuanced biologically going on? And, and I, I certainly don't know the answer. I don't, I, you know, you, you've, you've made your career really thinking about metabolics and, and the complications. Where, where, where is your thinking about that now, about the differences between these agents and classes? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, um, there's, there's something to the integrase uh, uh, class in terms of weight gain. And, and you know, whether that is um, an alteration of the actual fat cells or a decrease in the fat as a reservoir in the setting of HIV, you know, a lot of people have proposed those as two different mechanisms. Um, but it is interesting that you see weight gain also in, in HIV negative individuals who get uh, cabotegravir. So it makes you think, you know, perhaps there is, you know, some sort of metabolic switch that happens with this class of, of medicines. Um, and, and I think it'll, it'll be yet to be seen. I think the good news is it's a pretty modest weight gain. So, you know, I think that that is reassuring. Um, we're not seeing the outliers like we do in HIV, where we have uh, HIV-infected individuals, people with HIV. We have much bigger weight gains in a small subset. Those are the ones that are really disturbing. Um, you know, so I think it'll, I, I think we still have a lot to learn about that. I guess the other big issue I have from, from a prevention standpoint is some of the infections that, that you saw in the cabotegravir group um, were in people who were much late out uh, after they had um, uh, received their last injection. And so what do you, what do you think the implications for the long cabotegravir tail are and thinking about um, uh, consequences for, for resistance? Yeah, you know, this is something that, that we've, we and others have been really interested in, you know, since the whole concept of long-acting extended release therapies entered the prevention space, right? You know, it's, it's sort of just as um, important, but um, different in the treatment space. Um, in the treatment space, obviously, if you came off a long-acting 
regimen, you would want to go on a short-acting daily oral regimen to make sure that viral rebound doesn't put you at risk for um, resistance in that setting. And, and we sort of have been thinking a little bit ana analogously um, in the prevention space. Sorry, my, my dogs are photobombing our, our chat here. They're very excited by this conversation. They want to know if they're at risk for weight gain for hearing presentations about cabotegravir. Um, but, uh, um, you know, in the prevention space, this long tail in, has the theoretical possibility for if you're exposed as these levels decline um, and, and acquire HIV, would you then um, be at risk for selecting for these integrase resistant variants um, and then, you know, make it harder to treat with, you know, first line, for example, TLD or or a Bictegravir-based regimen or a Dolutegravir-based regimen. And, and we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, unfortunately, because, you know, COVID, and we're going to keep coming back to COVID, don't worry, um, uh, fellow travelers who came to hear lots about COVID and PrEP, um, uh, we're going to be getting there. Um, it, you know, we're having a little bit of delays in, in getting all the samples shipped from our, our especially our non-US sites, to, to get a full picture of that. But I think that's one of the questions that most people have sort of approached the study team with is, you know, there there are these people who, you, you know, who you reported that they they acquired HIV infection after these prolonged hiatuses. What do you know about what their drug concentrations were? You know, at the time they they got um, they were diagnosed with HIV, um, and what are the resistance implications on on those folks? And also, we reported on five participants who, at least as far as we know, got their cabotegravir injections on time, and they appear to have acquired HIV anyway. And, and what do you know about them and, and their drug levels? And what do you suppose you know, is, the, is the mechanism for that happening? And again, we're, we're, we're working really hard to figure out those answers to be able to give people all the information to make the best choice about what the right um, PrEP agent is for them. And, and again, um, you know, we don't know the answer yet. And we look forward to sharing it. But I think you, know, um, you brought up the COVID issue. So let me just circle us back a little bit to that. Um, you know, you're 100% right. The trial was not stopped before COVID. We were really uh, stopped for COVID. We were really happy, though, that the DSMB did provide this recommendation at this juncture because it really was the last data cut before particularly the U.S. sites started having significant disruption due to COVID. So, you know, the, the study had, uh, you know, had been ongoing in a blinded fashion. I think the data would have become super complicated to interpret. And I think anyone who's trying to provide HIV treatment or prevention services in the COVID era can really attest to how challenging this is from telemedicine being our primary mode all of a sudden of interacting to not being able to get safety testing or STI testing or challenges with medication supplies um, and these, these alterations in people's patterns of risk behavior, sometimes more, sometimes less, um, uh, people losing employment and therefore insurance coverage, all creating this incredibly complicated milieu of trying to keep people uh, engaged in prevention services. And, and I know we're getting a lot of questions already in the Q&A um, uh, section about what, how you navigate these. And, you know, Turner, you're still in the, in the midst of a raging pandemic there 
in, in Alabama, you know, how, how are you guys in your prevention clinic that you're so involved with, what are, what are you doing to keep people engaged in prevention services and how are you navigating it? Yeah, it's a great question. I want to answer just one quick question that came up that I, before we pivot away. Um, for the OA3 study, I think we don't know yet what the weight gain was, whether it was fat gain. We just know absolute weight. But we do know in HIV treatment studies that there seems to be excess fat gain with in individuals on uh, integrase inhibitors. So I think this, the jury's still out. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're working out more and you're gaining more muscle mass, that's great. But if you're gaining a lot of uh, fat, particularly visceral fat, that could be bad. And so I think we're, we need to learn more about that. Um, the other thing just I want to broach real quickly before we totally pivot away is, you know, there are two ongoing studies, uh, sub-studies of these two, two liminal studies, 083 and 084, that are going to look at adolescent populations, because I think that's a group that's really high risk. And I know that they've enrolled at least one person in the, the U.S.-based uh, trial of, of cisgender uh, men uh, in the U.S., uh, adolescent men, and then uh, a similar trial uh, will be a, a, a recruiting women, uh, adolescent women in sub-Saharan Africa. I have to tell you, when when COVID hit back in March, you know, it was um, it was just uh, devastating to to our clinic staff. People were extremely, uh, you know, scared by it. Um, our, our university basically shut down, which meant our prep clinic. Uh, uh, really shut down because we're dependent on non-clinical staff to help us run that clinic. They do a lot of work, outreach, uh, linkage to care, and other services, and, and they were deemed not essential uh, workforce. So we were forced with a situation, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, we went from, you know, full-on visits to the next week, we were totally canceled. And so how to handle that um, was challenging. And, and fortunately, you know, our staff rose to that challenge and quickly, you know, pivoted to be able to do phone visits, telehealth visits, and setting that up for patients um, and maintaining uh, access to PrEP as well as STI and HIV testing. And I can tell you, um, first and foremost, just, just keeping people engaged was a challenge um, in our clinic. Uh, uh, we were able to, to maintain high rates of uh, persistence uh, but through some significant outreach. And then, you know, our providers stood up and began doing phone visits and then telehealth visits rapidly. Um, initially, uh, because we didn't have capacity for HIV testing so much, we were extending people one month. But, you know, as we moved, it was, as it was clear this was going to go on longer, we had to develop a strategy. And so one of the things that we, we utilized was having, uh, uh, setting up testing for people um, testing visits, just where they would come in and just get the, the labs that they needed. Um, we looked into uh, some of these the home-based testing, um, and while in, in our setting that's capable, that's possible for HIV testing, it really wasn't possible to do STI testing. We didn't have a reliable lab. The other thing that we started to do was partner with one of our aid service organizations who started doing drive-by testing. And so what we were able to do is they would actually give people kits and they would bring those kits back and then they would process and while we didn't have to utilize that uh, a significant amount, that was a, a, an, an extra way that our patients uh, could get access to testing. And, you know, I really was uncomfortable extending people's, uh, you know, PrEP agents for more than a month. I mean, it, one month made me concerned enough, 
um, without HIV testing because of the concern that they could acquire um, HIV. We've been looking specifically you know, at some of these high-risk populations, what I'm really worried about is some of our particularly young populations who are at risk and, and homeless or tenuously housed and what is gonna happen to them. We're really looking into those populations. We've, we've continued to see high rates of, of HIV in Birmingham despite, um, despite the, the COVID pandemic. It hasn't stopped people from engaging in, in high-risk activity. You know, I, the best data that I've seen is the data that that um, Doug Krakauer presented at the summer meeting. If people aren't familiar with that, you know, maybe we can put a link to that on this. I, I, you know, it speaks to the challenges that Fenway experienced. I mean, Fenway is, you know, uh, what an exemplary clinic of, of meeting the needs uh, for HIV prevention and many other services. And, and, you know, first just to look out to see they have over 3,500 individuals uh, accessing HIV prevention services. But what was most disturbing about his presentation was the decline in the number of people uh, maintaining uh, HIV uh, prevention uh, services, both in terms of PrEP, uh, they had a decrease in the number of new prescriptions, a decrease in the number of uh, people remaining on prescriptions, as well as a significant drop in the number of people who were getting HIV and STI testing. Um, you know, going from a thousand HIV tests uh, in a in a month to two hundred. I mean, that's just you know, it's not like the HIV risk is not staying in the community. So what it really speaks to is we need to develop better strategies um, to maintain this. And I think I think that many clinics have done that by being able to ramp up alternative approaches uh, such as you know telehealth and phone visits, and then doing some self collection. Um, as well as drive-by testing, at least for us. How about you in LA? How have you guys been handling it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, we were we were able um, to to keep our clinic operational throughout um, the pandemic thus far. You know, we've been quite lucky. But we we switched very early on, as it sounds like you did, and I think a lot of institutions did, to minimizing in-person contact. So we. We did um, sort of lab-only visits, followed by telehealth, and you know, with with um, patients coming in very spaced and socially distanced um, into the clinic for those lab tests. Um, I've heard of other clinics really being super creative, um, uh, leveraging home HIV testing. Again, some of these home STI testing kits that. You know, I think some sites have had better luck with than others. Some have had um, better luck with um, with validation um, of other partners to allow that to be done more easily. And that's, of course, the big challenge. Helps a lot that, you know, now we have, um, you know, a, a pharyngeal and rectal test that's FDA cleared. That obviously is paving the way for better options. Um, but more than just the testing, which I've not, found to be nearly as challenging, I've gotten lots of questions about people who want to know not only the question that you, you answered about how you approach it of how long can you extend these prescriptions if people can't come in for regular testing, but um, what about STI treatment that would require injectable therapy like gonorrhea or syphilis? 
um, you know, how comfortable are people going outside the standard STI treatment guidelines that we adhere to with non-traditional regimens in these sort of contexts. And again, in LA, we've not had to resort to um, to those sorts of measures. We've been able to bring people in for penicillin injections or ceftriaxone with azithro. Um, but, you know, I've gotten lots of questions about whether algorithms that either leverage cefixime um, or um, quinolone therapy for gonorrhea with follow-up testing as a last resort um, is reasonable in these extreme times. And I have not been comfortable adapting my practice to that. I'm not aware of guidelines that have endorsed it. I will say that although the CDC guidance on, on PrEP use during the pandemic does recommend the same schedule of events, depending on a very individualized approach. If I have someone that I have known in the clinic and been following on PrEP for a prolonged period of time, and I know that they're, for example, their renal function has been stable over time and their refills are on time and they're adherent, I have extended that interval out to as long as six months. I don't like doing it. That is not my routine practice. But on a case-by-case -case basis, I have done that um, in the context of the pandemic. I still think the best practice is to stick with the quarterly testing, but um, it'd be very interested to hear um, others in the audience's experience with their level of comfortability. It sounds like, you know, Turner, for you, you, know, you, you have a very young, highly at risk population. You might be less comfortable doing that, particularly if it's a population um, who has additional risk factors for, for renal dysfunction. On, on, on oral PrEP medication. I think that's another thing to, to use as a risk stratifier in your mind. But it's, it is hard because there haven't been guidelines that have been very permissive about that to date. Um, so, you know, we're sort of aggregating best practices at this point. It, it's, it's challenging. I really think that drive-through idea of giving people kits and allowing self-sample collection and returning that to a validated lab is a creative way and and i'd love to hear from others on you know who might be listening in if there are other creative or innovative ways that that they've been dealing with this because i think it does require out of the box thinking i think the data on what's happening with risk behavior varies greatly by community and some some people are sheltering in place together and having more um more uh, putting themselves at, at, at at increased risk and some people are, you know, not leaving the house and having decreased risk and wondering if they even have a need for ongoing prep services. Um, and I agree with you, Doug's, Doug's data from the Fenway is really provocative. And, you know, you know not only the decreased rate of, of STI and HIV testing, but the, the high rate of positive STI testing on the tests that are done certainly make you concerned that, you know, as things revert um, to, to more of a normal pattern of testing, we're going to unmask um, uh, even more new STIs and possibly HIV infections um, than we even know are, are sort yeah. of um, in the mix right now. It, it, I don't know what your thoughts are if we want to look at some of the things that people are writing in. Yeah, well, I was looking at those, and I think um, you raised a good point. I do think that one of the reasons the, the, the percentage of positive tests have gone up is people who are symptomatic are, are going to push for testing, whereas the asymptomatic people may be less likely. Although I can tell you, um, rectal chlamydia is often asymptomatic when we diagnose it, and that's actually our most common STI here at our, our clinic. Um, 
I would agree. So, so Ryan Racino had a great question about, you know, uh, our advice to our prep patients, and and you know, people are exhausted, but at the same time, we have to remain our uh, remain vigilant. I mean, um, I'm really worried about what's going to happen with our COVID numbers coming out of Labor Day, and and with schools reopening. I mean, you've seen the colleges throughout the Southeast and and other places as well. Um, really high rates. And so if you think about, you know, many of our, our prep patients fall into that, that, you know, late adolescence, young adult age group where, you know, perception of risk is low and, and risk fatigue as well uh, is high. And so, you know, I think we need to be really careful about the guidance that we give them. And I, you know, we talk about risk reduction strategies. That's, that's our approach. I think that for our staff, it's really important. We're used to meeting these people where they are and trying to really meet their needs. We need our staff to be careful, um, at least right now in Alabama, because we still have high rates of COVID and not for our staff not to put themselves at risk and ed try to educate our patients. I mean, if, if our patients are engaging in, in HIV risk behaviors, those are also gonna be COVID risk behaviors. So for instance, we follow the same policies uh, of pre-screening our, our PrEP patients before they come in. And if they, you know, fail the pre-screen, we have to refer them for COVID testing and come up with alternative strategies to see them. Uh, I, I think that we've got to address it head on. We can't, we can't act as though it's not, it's not happening. Um, and so it's really critical that we give our patients the best advice possible. But I think we have to continue to follow a risk reduction strategy you know, uh, and careful counseling and make sure that they're aware, just like we do for, for HIV, um, you know, the, the medicines that they take, um, uh, you know, are not 100% effective um, and it doesn't protect them from STIs. And, and furthermore, I think that if we talk a little bit, I know a lot of people have asked me about, well, if I'm taking my PrEP, is that going to, to protect me from COVID? And, you know, I just don't, the data, I mean, while it, there has been some, some, test tube data that suggests there may be some activity against, um, uh, against the virus. I don't see data that for me um, is strong enough or robust enough to, to suggest in any way that by taking uh, tenofovir FTC or TAF FTC is gonna prevent um, COVID infection. In fact, I, I don't wanna give that message because I don't want people to have the perception that I'm going to be protected and I can go do whatever. I think it's really important that we inform patients um, about that. Um, maybe you can address this one. Susan Marshall sent us a great question about, uh, you already addressed it somewhat. She's seeing an increase in gonorrhea and rectal chlamydia, but no increase in HIV. What do you think about that? Do you think that's because of her population or, or you know, how do you, how do you interpret those kind of data that she's seeing? Yeah, um, so I, I don't know of any national data, but I fear and I suspect, you know, um, surveillance always lags behind reality, right? So um, I, I think once we get good surveillance data, I fear that we're going to see an uptick um, in HIV uh, infection, particularly in our vulnerable populations who are mostly young and again have, you know, a sense of, of invulnerability. And, and I worry about that. But well, we, we, you know, like in so many different disease states at the particular moment, um, I think, you know, epidemiology and surveillance are going to be critical to 
evaluation of how to direct interventions most effectively and achieve epidemic control. And I think, you know, this is just yet another syndemic that we're seeing. It happens to be, you know, two different viral infections, but, you know, we always talk about the synergies between these various epidemics of poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia, um, transphobia, poverty, um, uh, stigma, and now here's just another um, viral one. Um, so I, I think we have to have good surveillance to know uh, the answers to those to those questions and how to how to try potentially solve those problems. Um, I, I do agree with you that harm reduction really is is the key in this era because I think we've seen time and time again that if there's any perception of judgment or shaming about the way people are coping in this epidemic or in these epidemics, um, we're gonna lose the ability to have productive dialogue with, with our patients and with our clients. And you know, I, you know, I, I have to tip my hat to the New York City Department of, of, of Mental Health and Hygiene, you know, led by Dimitri Daskalakis. And anybody who knows Dimitri knows that he is a force of nature and you know the the New York City Department of Public Health put out a statement in the COVID era that you know exactly what you were alluding to that you know sexual risk is COVID risk in 2020 um, and you know they advocated essentially the use of glory holes um, as a safe way to be sexually active in the COVID era and you know it got a lot of attention in the lay press um, and, and, and clearly, you know, glory holes is not going to be a, a, a something that is going to be for everyone. But I think the point is, is an important one that there are ways to be sexually active and sex positive while still considering your COVID risk and being protective um, of yourself in, in both domains. And it takes a certain out of the box thinking that maybe we as more traditional healthcare providers wouldn't immediately go to um, in, in thinking about these syndemic control opportunities and speaking to um, patients and clients in a way that speaks to their realities. And again, not for everyone, but I think it's an important point that really pushes us all to be sex positive, fact-based, and practical for our patients. And, and you know, we always wanna be data-driven. And I think you and I um, you know, have been drilling down into the data a lot. Um, and, and sometimes there aren't good data and you still have to make good clinical decisions. And, and so I just really wanna call out that, that activity on the part of the New York um, uh, Department of Public Health for, for really pushing that boundary in that way. I don't know if you heard any questions about that from, from your patients or got any other questions about it from other providers that you interact with. I know a lot of people said to me, really, this is what a public health organization is endorsing? And I said, yes, really. And, and it's, it's the entree to this very important conversation, I think. Well, I think it's a big challenge. I, I will say one thing that I, has really um, been good in the prep space is how you know our our prep patients are younger overall and very tech savvy, and so they've been rapid to uptake telemedicine and be willing to do um, the the visits that are just lab visits and a telehealth visit uh, telehealth um, you know phone visit for the medical encounter. And, and I think that's been really really refreshing. Um, 
that in-person, even if it's just virtual interaction is really useful and it gives us an opportunity to, to engage our patients. So for people that you know, are, are struggling with how to do it, I've, I think it's been really remarkable in the ability that what we have seen is an uptick in, in reported substance use um, and, and as well as mental health complaints among, you know, among our population. And, and you know, while maybe these aren't severe, you know, when you add on these stressors, it reduces the, the likelihood that someone is going to uh, not put themselves at, at risk. And so I think it's really critical to maintain engagement and, and give people, you know, uh, a kind of a multiple options that they can consider and realize that there are options out there. Um, yeah, because, you know, I think if we just, if we just turn our back on these, these patients, we're going to end up with a, a huge burden of cases. One thing that has been a really remarkable to me for, you know, we are an 083 site and, and how well people were willing to come in and get their injection. Um, you know, we had a, a more abbreviated visit with them, but they, you know, they, they pushed through and they came in for those visits. Um, they were willing to follow uh, kind of the policies that we had in place. You know, we offered people the option to do, to switch, to just get an oral medicine for a, a bridge period. But overwhelmingly, people came in and got those. So I think having an open dialogue with patients and they're willing to, to meet you um, to get the testing they need, to get access to their medicines. But I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that they're getting access to those things. You know, it, it's, it's interesting that you bring up people's willingness to come in in the middle of a pandemic for injections. It, you know, COVID's not going away anytime soon, right? And we're hoping that there will be U.S. regulatory approvals um, for long-acting injectable treatment, I, I don't know, maybe as early as, as the beginning of the new year. Um, and, and, and hopefully, you know, HIV prevention you know, not, not too much um, thereafter. I don't think we know the timelines yet for, for planned regulatory submissions, but, um, you know, I think we're going to be asking the question of what kind of stresses on our services and our health systems are these long-acting prevention and treatment options going to place, particularly if people are still challenged to come to medically identified locations and we're still social distancing and having restricted hours um, at a time when we're trying to expand that. And I think it's really gonna push us all to think about what the safe ways to move the delivery of these long acting um, options outside of more conventional medical settings um, are possible. Can we use pharmacies? Can we use, you know, um, home health um, uh, ancillary staff who will come and administer injections? Can family members or people administer these things themselves, right? I mean, um, back in the day, people living with HIV used to inject themselves with multiple different injectable, either ART or testosterone or a combination of, uh, of those regularly. And, you know, there seems to be an assumption now that giving yourself a gluteal injection is a complete impossibility. But we forget that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And, you know, you know we need to be thinking outside of the box here because health systems aren't going to sort of come out of this cloud of, 
of these requirements of COVID for the foreseeable future that I can see. I mean, you know, if we're so lucky as to have a safe and effective vaccine sometime in the next year or so, that would be awesome, some return to normalcy. But I, I think we're going to actually be challenged with figuring out how to continue to deliver PrEP services and prevention services writ large um, throughout this pandemic for the, for the foreseeable. So I think it, it's something that bears creative thought and, and we need rigorous study too, right? I mean, we're doing it like we were saying, a lot of you know, trying to make good decisions absent great data we need the surveillance. We need data on how well different interventions work in this. And of course, doing research in a COVID era is extremely challenging. And um, you know, you have to be extra creative in your research practices as well. And there are limitations of various universities and lab lab functions. So I, I think it it requires a lot of collaboration and out of the box thinking to figure out how we're going to answer these questions for our patients. So just to go back, I mean, a couple of people have asked. I think those are those are. I mean, I, and I think people need to be creative so that, you know, look at your staff, talk to them, uh, look at what other people are doing. Um, I think those are those are important, important things. We don't have to create the, the new, create new things. We can just look and see what's been done elsewhere. So a couple of people have just asked, and you mentioned it briefly in passing, uh, when do you think that the injectables will will be available you know, in general, do you think early 20, first quarter 2021? Is that what, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't want you to put on your, get your crystal ball out, but what do you think the timeline is? You, you mean for prevention or are we talking about for treatment? For and prevention. prevention. I, well, you can yeah. even talk about for, for treatment as well. Yeah, I, I, for, 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 for treatment, I believe we're expecting some information, um, uh, you know, sort of in the holiday time period, maybe a little thereafter of this year. Um, for prevention, I just, I think it's, it's unknown at this point. Um, you know, I, we need to get um, some of our Vive colleagues to comment on what their plan for regulatory submission is. Um, I, I know everyone is extremely enthusiastic about pursuing um, regulatory approvals, but, you know, it's, it's got to be done in the in um, the most rigorous way, and and I just I just don't know what the timeline is for that. I would think, you know, it wouldn't be until you know that it wouldn't be available at the earliest until late 2021 at the earliest timeline that I could possibly imagine. But again, as you said, I, I just don't know. Um, but I I, you know, I think it's quite likely that we're still going to be battling with COVID whenever the you know these these approvals do come through. So I, I think thinking proactively with our stakeholders and communities um, is going to be critical to being ready to roll them out when they do get regulatory approvals. So, you know, I want to ask a different question that we haven't really talked about. So um, obviously uh, TAF FTC was approved for um, prevention, HIV prevention. I wonder how much in, in your clinic population, are you using much TAF-based PrEP? You know, it's, it's so interesting. I've heard um, of colleagues and, and people at, at various institutions taking polar opposite strategies. I've heard of people wholesale switching everyone in their practice immediately to TAF FTC based prep without even discussing it with, with their patients. And I've heard of people um, all the way on the other side saying, I will never switch anybody um, uh, to uh, TAF-based. 
prep. And, uh, you know, I think as, as with everything, you know, I, I think everything has a place and, and there's a rationale for everything. First of all, right, TAF, FTC has um, regulatory approvals for use for creatinine clearance, you know, below 60 down to 30. And I think that's an important differentiator. And I think if you have someone who's either got known renal dysfunction or you think is at accelerated risk or increased risk of renal dysfunction, um, uh, or, or has known history of osteopenia osteoporosis or, or is at increased risk for those diseases, it might not be unreasonable um, to use TAF FTC. Um, and then of course you have to balance that against the LDL um, uh, increases compared to TDF FTC that are uh, associated with, with TAF, probably driven by the decrease attributed to TDF. And then this weight gain issue. Um, and, and I think those are sort of the four elements that I think about in balancing that, you know, the risk of renal dysfunction, the risk of loss of bone mineral density, and what we know about that in clinical fractures, um, the weight gain issue and the, the lipid issue. And then, and of course, for some people, just the pill size difference um, is really critical, right? We've heard some adolescents and youth that the smaller TAF FTC tablet is a, is a major advantage in it being able to be um, adherent um, compared to the larger TDF FTC um, uh, tablet. I think that's a fairly, you know, likely small group of people that that's a, a, a critical difference. And of course, cost, um, right? You know, TDF FTC about to become available as a generic in the U.S. And you know, the cost differences that that will then create um, between um, uh, between the, the the two regimens going to largely factor into those decisions as well. So I, what are you doing? I mean, I, I mean, my practice is, is, you know, I take out Julia Marcus's infographic that if anybody on the call hasn't seen it, Google Julia Marcus. She's currently at, um, at Harvard. She was at Kaiser Northern California. She made an infographic that summarizes the, really the, the top line differences between the two. Print it out, laminate it, go over it with your patients. Turner, what do you do? I, I'm talking too much. Yeah, so we did it head on. We tried to address it with our patients. I mean, we first we met as a group and we said, so what do we think about the data? We reviewed the data. I, I do have some concerns long-term and, and maybe not so much in the prevention space as the treatment space that TAF is gonna increase cardiovascular risk to a greater extent than the effect of TDF on, on renal or bone. And you know, I think we just have to wait and see. There's been some signals coming out of various cohorts suggesting that uh, in the HIV literature and the prevention, you know, I think it's more subtle weight gain, you know, change in lipids, you know, maybe modest. And so it's going to take a long time to see an effect. But you know, in talking to to patients, we we addressed it head on um, and and tried to to talk to them about risks and benefits. Um, and you know, for the most part, we aren't switching, and we we. We switch in certain patients. You know, a few people have had a request to switch and after sharing the data with them, they still want to switch, we've done that. And the people that have, uh, uh, you know, renal dysfunction, we've gone ahead and switched in them. Uh, we had a couple of uh, older uh, individuals who had known uh, osteopenia and so we actually switched in them, but I still think the number is relatively small. So, so you know, I think it gives us another you know, option uh, to use in our patient population that is really helpful, but haven't been doing it. My biggest concern, and, and this is a practical one, when TDF FTC goes to generic, it's likely that um, the copays will no longer be met uh, for, for that combination. 
And so the actual cost to a patient may be higher with the generic and then with the um, copay card used for the, the TAP FTC. So we may end up having to switch because the cost is actually less for our patients. And I hope that doesn't happen, but we have seen that happen with some of our HIV agents as well. And so we're gonna be stuck, you know, not necessarily stuck. I don't think it's a bad choice. I just think that, um, you know, we have lots of experience with, with one agent. They both work, you mentioned this earlier. I don't want to, to suggest that, that one or the other doesn't work. They both work very effectively. And, you know, we're gonna have more agents coming out soon. Um, it's gonna be really interesting to see if some of these oral long acting are effective. Um, if they are, wow, what is that gonna to do to the field? Um, you know, they're, they're uh, and then, you know, some of these uh, micro- um, um, uh, Needle patches. Yeah, the patches thinking? and the depot formulations. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the field is really going to evolve a lot. Um, and, and the question is, how do, how do we handle that and what do we do? I mean, it's kind of nice when you have limited choices. Um, uh, once you get choices, I mean, it's, it's good. It's going to be nice for patients, but it may be harder to have that conversation about what's right for you um, or, or right for me. I mean, we'll have to put an apostrophe uh, by each patient so we can know what's, what's best for them. You know, it's it's a really good point. You know, it's you know more options is better, but it certainly makes the discussion more nuanced and complicated. But I I, I don't know. I'm tremendously excited and energized by the notion of more options, just because it's an opportunity not only to say you're already engaged in prevention services. Here's something else you could do. But I think the, the you know when people hear well, there's a shot or there's something, a pill I could take every month or there's a, an implant or there's a patch. I think more individuals think maybe I could do that. You know, um, who previously said, I'm not gonna take a pill every day. That's never gonna work for me. Or even people said, I'm not gonna take a pill and I don't want a shot. Um, you know, I think if it has the ability to bring more people into prevention services, that is where the huge win is, right? And, and not, people aren't going to also have just one preference um, over their lifespan, right? It might be, well, this is what I want for right now, and maybe I want to do something else next year. And to have that flexibility, I think we've seen in the family planning literature, um, only uh, accelerates coverage. And I think that's what we're looking for here. So uh, it's exciting. It's going to be more complicated. Um, I don't envy our, our colleagues who are um, on the primary care fronts right now, because you know they need to be the the literally the Jackson Jills of all trades and everything to everyone and deal with innumerable acute problems, chronic problems, health maintenance problems, preventive issues. It's um, those people are superheroes. Um, and and just to add this into the prevention mix, where you know th those are the folks who are seeing people who are not yet um, living with HIV. So. So we need to, to be able to make this digestible in some way. And that's going to be a challenge, a challenge I look forward to, but it's going to be a challenge. Goodness. I can't believe we've, we've spent a whole hour together virtually. Turner, um, I, I do want to say that it was almost as fun as sitting in the back of a room 
and as you said, making snarky comments about Mike Sag. Um, but <laughs> you know, I, I can only hope that uh, that that we get to do that again soon. Um, did you take a look at the Q and A? Make sure there you weren't know, any we rapid fire. We've done a pretty good job of addressing most of the comments and questions that people have put in. So, um, one comment I thought was interesting that uh, uh, Terrence Donovan said was sex pause and COVID pause. I mean, I think our messaging needs to be comprehensive and, and empowering. We need to let people know what they can do to keep themselves safe from from HIV as well as safe from COVID and and you know if we have to think outside the box so be it. Completely agree. Well with that we want to thank um, our colleagues at IAS USA for hosting this conversation. We want to thank you all um, for joining us for this Zoom conversation. Hopefully this is interesting, informative, and possibly entertaining. Um, subscribe to Turner's YouTube channel. Um, you can follow him on Instagram and Snapchat. Um, and, uh, and Turner, thank you so much for, for hanging out with me for an hour. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Rafi. And yeah, big thanks to Donna Jacobson and her team for making it happen. This was fun. Um, hope everybody stays safe and um, take care of yourselves. And we'll hope to see you at an IAS USA event soon in person. Thanks, Bye, everyone. everybody.